Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. I'm here with Terry Fakes this week, and we are going to do another one of our Bible book overviews. And this week we're doing the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, when you think about the Gospels, this is the one that most people think of. And I want to say that's not just because it's the first Gospel in the New Testament, but that's got to have something to do with it. Give us a quick intro to the book of Matthew. Well, first, who is Matthew? And I realize that that may be simple for some of our listeners, but I'll just remind you, I did not grow up a Christian, and obviously none of us were born knowing these things. So Jesus had a lot of disciples, meaning people who followed him, but he had 12 in particular that he chose and commissioned, if you will. And Matthew was one of those original 12. We know from the gospel accounts that his disciples came from, oh, various walks of life and I guess I'd say various theologies. I mean, you have Simon the Zealot, which was a pretty radical party, political party amongst the Jews. And Matthew was on the other side of the political spectrum. He was a tax collector. So he was Jewish, but he had kind of betrayed his people for money, and they saw the tax collectors as oppressors. So frankly, choosing Matthew was a pretty bold move and a pretty scandalous move, I would think, on Jesus' part. So Matthew was a tax collector, one of the original 12, and Matthew is one of the earliest, perhaps, to have written down what he was teaching, he and the other 12. He's not the only one teaching these things about Jesus, but the Gospel of Matthew is his ministry, if you will, his recollections mm-hmm. and his teaching to people. Yeah, it's there's a couple of interesting historical things about Matthew that I think are worth noting. The first one being we get introduced to Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew itself. Uh, in chapter 9, he tells us in the third person about his own calling. So in Matthew 9, 9, as Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Well, we, we encounter this story in the other Gospels as well. And there, Matthew's name is Levi, tax collector right. as well. Uh, but, but in the book of Matthew, it, both in this account here and then in the next chapter when Jesus names the disciples, we see him named Matthew. The interesting thing is he doesn't ever tell us in the gospel that that's him. And and part of that is what's customary at the time for gospel writing. Again, we don't get uh, an author credit in the gospel of Mark either. We do get a veiled uh, autobiographical piece in John where he says, the beloved disciple, this is the one that's writing this. Uh, and Mm -hmm. And then obviously since... Luke is styled as a personal letter. Uh, it's a little bit easier to tell who it is. But uh, this would not have been uncommon at the time to have a gospel like this that doesn't have a name on the top of it. Uh, but we are fairly certain that this was written by Matthew, aren't we? Yes, and that's true. The authorship uh, goes all the way back to the early church. There's never been any serious doubt until, of course, modern times. Mm-hmm. We know best, right? The early church had no doubt about it. By the way, before we leave chapter 9 and 10, one of the interesting things, and you see this humility in all of the disciples, is Matthew, when he lists the 12 in chapter 10, he lists himself as Matthew the tax collector. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, if I were Matthew, I'd pretty much want to put that behind me. Yeah. But uh, it's just interesting that he's not ashamed of what he you, you know used to be as opposed to who he is now. There's mm-hmm. a lot of humility in that. Yeah, the early church was unanimous that this was uh, written by Matthew. In fact, Eusebius, who is a uh, historian, he's a Christian, he lived in the late 200s, early 300s A.D., so very early church father, wrote a history of the church. Uh, Here's what he says in Book 3, Section 24. He said, Matthew had begun by preaching to Hebrews or Jews, and when he made up his mind to go to others too, meaning to also preach to Gentiles, he committed his own gospel, meaning his teaching, to writing in his native tongue so that for those with whom he was no longer going to be present, the gap left by his departure was filled by what he wrote. Which is interesting, gives us a clue as to why did, uh, basically, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, why did they write these things down? And uh, secondly, it's an interesting allusion to Matthew having originally written this gospel. Of course, Mm -hmm. it comes down to us in Greek, but probably wrote it originally in Aramaic. Yeah, that's an interesting question when we get into the background of these Gospels. And uh, I want to spend a moment talking about that, picking up the discussion where we left it off in in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, But I I want to say one more uh, biographical thing about Matthew. It's interesting, and I think Matthew is probably unique in this aspect. With the other books in the New Testament, there is attestation to at least the author of the book other places in the New Testament. So, for example... In, for the Gospels, we have John, uh, talked about in, in the book of Acts. We, we, we know about him through other sources. Uh, we know about Luke and Mark and their travels with Paul from the book of Acts. Right. We see Peter referencing Paul's epistles in, in his mm-hmm. letters um, and, and, and back and forth. We see attestation from Jude and Second Peter knowing about each other. Uh, we don't have any reference to the book of Hebrews, outside of the book of Hebrews, and mm-hmm. we don't have any attestation to Matthew outside of, of the gospel accounts. And this is interesting to me, is if Matthew is one of the 12, he's doing ministry in Jerusalem. In the book of Galatians and in Acts, the pillars of the New Testament church in Jerusalem are Peter and John and James, and, and uh, we don't right. hear anything about Matthew. And that's interesting because you would think somebody that prominent you would have something about them in those accounts, but it's possible his ministry was just extending to in different directions. Right. I think that's true. And I, I also think he doesn't really have the pedigree. I mean, Peter was not pedigreed in the sense of, uh, you know, being a, a Pharisee of Pharisees or, you know, being a prominent person in the community. But Matthew had a pretty checkered past. And I always think of Matthew as going about his business preaching the gospel, but not necessarily going to the parties at the country club. Right. Yeah, you know, he's kind of the quiet disciple going about his business. Yeah, now what would it what would it have been like to be a first century tax collector? Well, you certainly would have been ostracized by all of the religious elite. And for example, James the brother of Jesus, it was very well thought of by the Pharisees, even though obviously he was a Christian, but he was learned, he was respected, he was devout, he was devout as a Jew before he became devout as a Christian. Matthew would have been uh, considered an outcast and a traitor 
for all of his adult life, and I think it would have been very hard for him to re-enter any kind of circles of even the Christians who had formerly been Jews. Mm -hmm. It would have been really hard for them to let go of their antipathy towards Matthew. Yeah, that's one of the things that you have to remember is several times in the Gospels, tax collectors are used in either stories or parables as the bad character. Right. So you have uh, you have the tax collector who's the worst of the worst, who actually ends up being an example of, of praying righteously. Right. And what Jesus is proving there is, hey, even a tax collector could do this. Uh, right. If you had somebody even as bad as a tax collector and they did this, that that would be good. Then in you addition, really don't want to. You don't want to be the guy who's used as the example of the worst of the worst. Like, well, even yeah. Terry, you know, could do this. Right. <laughs> and we do see that with tax collectors. We also see the story of Zacchaeus, obviously. Um, likely that Zacchaeus and Matthew would have known each other. Right. Um, the circle's just not that big uh, in, in the ancient world when it came to tax collectors. They were seen as sellouts, basically. Right. So it's interesting that you have Matthew, who that's his background, probably spending most of his time writing and teaching to Jews. And in fact, once you begin the Gospel of Matthew, you start to see the Jewish emphasis from the get-go. Right. So I want to I just do a little case study here. If you, if you open up to the first chapter of Matthew, you'll see a strange thing. And it's, it's interesting, this is the first thing you'll read in the New Testament but uh, you also don't get anything quite like this in the other Gospels. Luke has something similar, but, but he doesn't begin his Gospel the same way that Matthew does. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this is significant for a lot of different reasons. The first one being, in the ancient world, oftentimes the first line of a book, uh, we see this in the Psalms and in other places, is not just a title, it's also a theme. Right. Um, we, we discussed on the podcast of the book of Mark, the theme of Mark is, is Mark 1.1. 1, 1. He's mm-hmm. going to prove to you that this is the Christ and that he is the Son of God. Well, in right. the same way, uh, Matthew begins his book with a really significant sentence, but it's less clear what this sentence actually means to us unless we understand our Old Testaments. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus can also be can also be translated to say the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting is that's the title and, and the refrain that we get in the book of Genesis. So you you see five times in the book of Genesis, these are the generations of Noah. Right. These are the generations of uh, Isaac. These are the generations of so and so. And, and they're not just markers to almost like chapter headings in, in Genesis. They're also previewing and setting up your expectation for who this person is and, and the important thing, who this person's offspring are. Because oftentimes we see the book of the generations of someone and we think of that someone. But, but what that phrase is telling us is the significant portion here is the offspring, the sons and daughters and grandchildren of this person. Now, when we get to the Gospel of Matthew, we have the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which is slightly different. Um, He's going to focus not just on who Jesus' children are, per se. He's actually going to tell us whose child Jesus is. 
He's going to do this in a couple of ways. He begins by saying the son of David, the son of Abraham, but he's going to prove to us through this book that he's actually the son of God. Right. So there's a lot of stuff that's been preached and and written on this genealogy, um, and and some of that's probably familiar to uh, the listeners, but anything you'd want to point out in this genealogy? Oh, my goodness. There are so many things in the genealogy. I guess the first thing I would say is we talked about uh, Eusebius said that Matthew began his ministry preaching to Jews, and certainly the genealogy of Jesus would have been important to them to any claim that he was the Messiah because the Messiah would be the son of David and then Mm -hmm. of course tracing him back to Abraham makes him well within the camp of Jews, of uh, God's people. So that would have been very important to the Jews. The uh, genealogy appears to be a little stylized. In other words I, I don't think any of us would claim that every single person is in this genealogy but you know it. it uh, and this has been this point's been made several times. But there are some notorious people in this mm-hmm. genealogy, and probably the great sermon on all these points. You've got you know prostitute in there. You've got some women in there. You've got you know various people in here. And and one of the great lessons is that God uses imperfect humanity to fulfill His purposes. And I think that genealogy, even if we're not Jewish, has some great lessons for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, outsiders and unlikely yeah. heroes uh, uh, make right. their way into this. Uh, there, there's been some great stuff recently on the women that are mentioned in mm-hmm. this genealogy. Which uh, is atypical, by yeah, the way. Yeah, very strange to include women in a Jewish genealogy, but it just even more so puts the emphasis on the women that are listed here. Obviously, you have Absolutely. Rahab, the the harlot in Jericho. You have Ruth mentioned here. You don't have uh, Bathsheba mentioned by name, but you have the wife of Uriah mentioned in verse right. 6. Uh, very interesting. Uh, obviously, this is probably a truncated genealogy, 14 yep. generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations uh, from David to, to, to Babylon. That That's if you think about the dates, it has to be truncated because the first gap is significantly bigger than the second gap. <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. So we we begin there, and then Matthew shows us one of his operating procedures pretty quickly in this in this gospel. We see it for the first time in verse twenty three. I guess beginning in verse twenty two, setting up verse twenty three. He says, "All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet." Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew is really concerned in this book to show us how Jesus fulfills what God had promised through the Old Testament prophets. I mean, in fact, he does this again and again and again. Four, right. four or five times in the first two chapters, he's taking us back to our Old Testament and showing that this is who Jesus was. This is who he was promised to be. This is how he fulfilled God's plan. This is how we know we can trust him. Um, why do you think he was so intent to do that in his gospel? Uh, that's a great point. I think Matthew is very concerned to demonstrate that Jesus is, and I'm put this in quotes, the Jewish Messiah. Now he's mm-hmm. going to talk about Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of all humanity who repent and place their trust in him. But I think his audience, he needs to connect with what they know and what their expectations are. And so by quoting so many, as you just flip through 
the book of Matthew, you'll see my Bible sets out the Old Testament prophecies separately, so you can just look at it and realize, oh my goodness, he's quoting Old Testament prophecy all over this as a sign that these things are now being fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And I think given his audience, that is a, a very sensible way to do it. I also think, by the way, I don't know that we think about this much, and this is probably off topic, but remember in Acts where the Apostle Paul goes into the synagogues? When he gets to a new town, he goes to the synagogue first, and he begins to speak to them about Jesus. I suspect he was speaking the same kinds of things that Matthew is. Mm -hmm. He says, hey, fellow Jews, let me take the Old Testament and show you how these things have now come to pass. So Mm -hmm. I presume that it's because he's connecting that Jewish audience with the fulfillment of prophecy. Would you you add anything to that? Yeah, I would agree with that. And we do see that as the apologetic method of the early church. We see that a lot of the early dialogue happened in the synagogues, um, in the temple. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're talking about Jesus in the context of the Old Testament. In fact, we see the apostles, their, their main uh, obstruction to spreading the gospel, at least initially, is from the Jews. And it's almost, to the outside world, it almost looks like an intramural dispute right. at first, as opposed to two separate uh, groups of people. And I think Matthew, although I don't detect a strong apologetic impulse in the gospel as a whole, I think what he's trying to do is is continue those conversations and show this is actually the continuation of what God has done from the beginning. This is not a new thing separated from uh, everything else that God has done. Uh, This is actually a fulfillment of what God has done. Yeah, uh, as I look through—I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I just—I was going to say—I—I I, I think that uh, it lends even more credence to the ministry that Matthew was probably doing. That this is the gospel that we're reading that he wrote. Right. I would agree. As you look through your Bible, and I hope that this motivates you to read the Gospel of Matthew. Those first four chapters, which are basically uh, Jesus' birth, genealogy, the birth of Jesus, and then his preparation for ministry. Chapter 4 ends with the temptation in the wilderness, and then he begins to he begins his ministry. But if you just look at how many Old Testament prophecies are cited there, even in the temptation of Jesus, as you know, he quotes, as the three times he's tempted, he quotes Old Testament passages from Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. And the whole first part of this is a connection to the past, but it seems to me that from chapter 5 on, you get these great discourses or teachings of Jesus. He he moves on then after he's established Jesus' connection with the Old Testament. He turns then to Jesus' teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Matthew spans, uh, he, he, if you think about him, in one hand he has the Old Testament and, and at the other he's thinking about the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, not mm-hmm. only do we get an apocalyptic dialogue at the end of, of this book that we'll talk about in a minute, but... But we also get the promise in, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that Jesus says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Yeah. Uh, there's, some, there's some really interesting theological points that come out because of that, uh, and we'll get there. But for the setup, at least, Matthew is tying the past up to the time of Christ, and he's looking forward from the time of Christ. In fact, I think he's doing this uniquely so, in the sense that if you if you read the Gospel of John, for example, he says a couple of times in there that the purpose for writing this book is so that you might believe in Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. And while I think that Matthew is doing that 
in some ways, I think there is a, a little bit of an apologetic or an evangelistic appeal in Matthew. Actually, the early church read this as a discipleship manual. In right. fact, one of the things that's really interesting is this book is probably written more with believers in mind than any of the other Gospels. Agreed. It's probably one of the most popular, according to all accounts, most popular Gospels of the four in the first few centuries. And it's kind of, it's also known as the teacher's gospel because it Mm -hmm. contains so many of Jesus' teachings. I would also add that it doesn't have much editorial comments, if you will. It doesn't seem like Matthew is belaboring himself to draw a lot of inferences from Jesus' teaching. He's just throwing it out there. Jesus said this, Jesus did this. It's like you said, I think that's a great way to put it. It's sort of a manual for disciples. Right. I think... He's writing with young believers in mind. He's trying to show them what's required to follow Christ. Uh, what's interesting, and, and, and this, is, uh, this is just the tradition of the church, but so when, when Paul and Barnabas split ways, it, traditional that Barnabas went back to his homeland, uh, went back to do ministry where he grew up, uh-huh. And if you see icons of Barnabas, a lot of times you'll see him with a staff in one hand and a book in the other. And what a lot of people think, or at least what's traditionally been believed by the church, is that Barnabas took a copy of the Gospel of Matthew back with him and translated it into uh, his own language. Yeah. And uh, that just it, whether that story is actually true or not, it's traditionally true, and it demonstrates something that is true about the Gospel of Matthew, that it was seen as a book that you could give to new believers, a book that you could give to people who wanted to follow Christ, and it would get them on their way. And, and one of the big reasons for that is the organization of the book of Matthew. Uh, we see that the, the book is, is divided into, or, or at least it's constructed around, five major dialogues and I'll go through those and then maybe we can spend a minute talking about each one of them but Mm -hmm. uh, you know one of the big differences between the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark and and we talked about this in the Mark podcast but a lot of people think that Mark was written first and Matthew and Luke had access to Mark as they're writing their gospels one of the things that's really interesting is Mark doesn't include very much teaching at all in his gospel Right. But here Matthew comes with these five big dialogues, these or discourses, these, these five big chunks of Jesus' teaching. And he builds his entire gospel around these. So the first one is, is the most famous. It's the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching about uh, what it means to live in the kingdom, the Beatitudes. Probably several of the most famous passages in Matthew fall, fall in this discourse. Second... Chapter 10, Jesus sends out the disciples. This is a piece of of the Gospels that is usually missed. We think about the disciples come, they spend three years with Jesus, he's crucified, and then there's the Great Commission at the end. And that's not really what happens in the Gospels at all. Uh, Actually, Jesus gathers a, a big group of disciples. He calls some specific disciples, and then he sends them out in various sizes of groups on various lengths of missions to go and spread the gospel even during his own lifetime and then come back. So this this picture that we have of Jesus with his 12 disciples going everywhere together for three years is, is a little bit inaccurate. And in right. fact, chapter 10 are the marching orders 
for these disciples as they go out into the world. Uh, the third discourse is the set of kingdom parables that you'll find in chapter 13. Several mm-hmm. really famous parables are, are found in that, and some of them are not found anywhere else. We see the parable of the sower, the explanation right. of the parable of the sower, the purpose of parables, the weeds, the mustard seed. Uh, you, you get all kinds of hidden treasure, pearl of great price, the net, uh, new and old treasures, a really distinct set of parables about the kingdom of, of God. Again, that that vision of what it means after you've accepted Christ, what does it mean to be one of his people? Mm-hmm. Uh, the fourth one is uh, teaching on the Messianic community, so teaching about the church. And uh, you had an interesting fact that I actually ha- had never heard before about uh, Jesus teaching on the church in Matthew. Yes, uh, you, you see, particularly there in chapter 16, before we get to the chapter 18 you were talking about, is that great, uh, and again, this is the only place you see this story, but the where they uh, Jesus takes the disciples and they go to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he says, who do people say that I am? And uh, Peter makes the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus makes that famous statement that I tell you uh, this, that not even the gates of hell will prevail against my church. And that Greek word for church, ecclesia, is uh, only found in the Gospels in Matthew. Of course, it's found a lot in the rest of the New Testament, but Mm -hmm. it's only found in the four Gospels in Matthew. Well, and what's interesting about that, too, is not just that that's the only place we get this, but that the Gospels get a bad rap sometimes for not teaching about the church. So I think we've all probably come across arguments before or pushback that, you know, Jesus wanted to start this movement of love and uh, serving each other and laying down your life for each other. And then Paul came along and reinvented the gospel and established churches and gave us rules for how the church should operate. Actually, the fourth discourse, beginning even before the discourse itself in chapter 16, as you mentioned, all the way through chapter 20, Jesus is giving some of the more prominent teaching on how the church should function, even within his own lifetime. So, for example, we have the, the teaching about what to do when your brother sins against you in chapter 18. And, and Matthew 18 is a really famous passage for how to handle conflict. You, you go to the person, and you bring another person with you, and then you tell it to the church. Again, another time he uses that word ecclesia in his gospel. This is really strong evidence that uh, the church took shape pretty quickly in the first century after Jesus' resurrection that uh, Jesus was already teaching on this. They were already putting these things into practice. Again, we see other early evidence of church practice outside of Paul, but but I think we just need to point out here that, that Jesus already had the future community in mind and gave some good instruction to his disciples on how this community should be carried out here in this fourth discourse. Um, in the middle, so traditionally, the fifth discourse begins in chapter 24. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's a famous one, too, because it's about the end of the world or judgment or the day of the Lord. 24 right. and 25 are, are the Olivet Discourse, and it's called that because he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a miniature discourse right before we get there that I actually think might be the most interesting discourse in, in the Gospel of Matthew, and that's in chapter 23, 
which is the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Uh-huh. And I always get a little bit of a, a, a laugh out of this. You have to laugh a little bit because it is so serious that, uh, you know, when people talk about Jesus being docile and meek and uh, kind to everyone right. and never condemning anyone, it's pretty clear that those people have not read Matthew 23, or at least if they have, it's in the very back of their mind, because right. this is one of the places in the Gospels that Jesus is is absolutely brutal to the Pharisees and to the scribes about the ways that they have set the teaching of men above the Word of God. And he, right. he pulls no punches to, to talk about the things about the Pharisees. He, he says uh, in verse 16, "'Woe to you blind guides!' who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by an oath. You blind fools, he says. <laughs> I mean, these are these are red letters here. He says in 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Yeah. Uh, later, he says you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. Uh, th- these are pretty strong words. You guys are whitewashed tombs, he says. W- what's he up to here? Yeah, he's. Uh, it certainly puts the kind of puts the emphasis on you. Actually, need to read. All, I'd say all of the Bible, but you most certainly, if you want to be part of the Jesus movement, which I think that's a 21st century throwback to this time, you certainly need to read all of what Jesus has to say. You know, probably one of the most misquoted verses out of the Sermon on the Mount is "Judge not." lest you be judged. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, you read chapter 23 and it might help you interpret that a little more wisely because he's certainly very judgmental, uh, calling it just like it is to the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, To me, this is significant in several ways, but just to keep this a little more brief, he is, this is condemnation and what he's condemning them for is oppression. Now, not necessarily economic oppression, not necessarily physical oppression, but spiritual oppression. And I think, uh, let me just put one little application to this. Those of us who are teachers, pastors, small group leaders, whatever it may be, we need to be very careful how we wield the spiritual influence that God has given us. Mm -hmm. I think that's an easy application to take. You can't read chapter 23 without feeling the weight, uh, the conviction, the seriousness of being a teacher, a leader, like you said, small group leader, whatever role of leadership you're in, there's a burden there to represent the words of the Lord accurately. Uh, so, you know, I, I want to get in the weeds here in a mo- for a moment, just, just for our listeners who think this way or have studied this. It's always interesting to me that the popular conception of Jesus is uh, so one-sided, so cherry-picked from, from the Gospels. But it's interesting, too, there's this group called the Jesus Seminar, and I don't know how familiar this will be to our, our listeners. Uh, in some ways, I kind of hope it's not familiar at all, uh, because I don't think the Jesus Seminar has done any favors to uh, biblical Christianity or, or Christian scholarship. But uh, one of the things that they've done is they've gone back and looked at, they've evaluated what statements from the gospel they think are most accurate or most historically reliable. And they, they vote on each verse to say, this is 100% authentic. This is likely authentic. There's no way this is authentic. And they get rid of, depending on what you read, they get rid of giant chunks of, of the New Testament gospels. A lot of the supernatural stuff, the miracles, 
that kind of thing they get rid of. And, and it's funny, I remember reading a, a book by Bart Ehrman at, at one point, obviously no friend of, of biblical Christianity, but even he at, at one point says to the Jesus Seminar guys who some of them don't even think that Jesus was a historical figure. He writes a book in defense of the historical Jesus <laughs> at, at one point, uh, which is kind of a strange reversal of roles. But you get to the end of their project, and they arrive at this conclusion, what can we know about Jesus? And without a doubt, every single one of those scholars is going to come down in a similar vein. What we can know about Jesus historically for certain is that he was an apocalyptic prophet. That's how he saw himself. That's the ministry that he had. He was a prophet who was talking about what God was going to do in the future when the day of the Lord comes. And it's interesting to me that uh, among the, the most liberal of biblical scholars, what can we be certain about? It's passages like Matthew 23, 24, and 25, where Jesus right. talks about the coming judgment of God. Now, I say that just to set up this last dialogue, n- not to say that that is the complete picture of Jesus, that, that all we can know about him is that he's an apocalyptic prophet, but that somehow when we read something like the second half of Matthew, we have to grapple with the fact that Jesus is a very complex figure. He's a, he, he is a textured and uh, challenging person to grapple with. When we get into chapters 24 and 25, he's predicting the end of the world. And uh, it sounds an awful lot like the book of Revelation. It's passages from Daniel. Uh, he's talking about judgment and wrath. What do we do with this picture of Jesus that we get at the end of the, of the book of Matthew? That's a great question and a great point that you make is Jesus cannot be understood, properly understood, without the eschatological element, the idea of him looking forward to the day of the Lord, the idea of God's sovereignty, the idea of God's justice. This is not incompatible with Jesus' love, no doubt that both of those are true at the same time. But first of all, what the end of Matthew does, all these red letters in this discourse, is it completely throws out the window as fabricated the idea that we have is Jesus's love just go love people and do nice stuff to everyone and if you do that you're a follower of Jesus you really have to leave out any complicated portion of of Jesus at all to get that vision that's a manufactured Jesus Jesus only exists and in God's redemptive plan and God's redemptive plan requires a looking forward to a day of judgment, a day of justice, a day of freeing the oppressed, if you will. I think if you don't have this ending in Matthew, I I would challenge whether or not you have the whole gospel. And I think that's mm-hmm. why you do have this ending of Matthew, is it really fills out the good news of the gospel. Right. People like to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and say, Jesus was like the, the ultimate nice guy. He mm-hmm. was like, hey, even love your enemies. Well, when you get to 24 and 25, he says, that's what I want you to do. But in the end, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy the enemies of God. Mm-hmm. You, need, you need both of those pictures. Right. He's going to destroy the enemies of God, and he's also going to vindicate the people of God, is what we see right. at, the, at the end of these judgment scenes, is, is not just, uh, 
you know, it's, it's one thing to say that this is unpleasant or it's not the way that we would run the world, but it's another thing to say, if this is what God has promised is going to happen, then how strange would it be to not make it clear? You know, at the end of chapter 25, for example, uh, this, it's at the end of a really famous passage that I want to talk about in a minute, but he, he just says, some will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous will enter into eternal life. That may not sit well with us, but if that's what's going to happen, then we need to talk about it. Right. Uh, just pretending like it's not is not a good way to avoid that outcome. Now, what's interesting is he talks about judgment. He talks about the end of the world. Beginning in 25, he tells a couple of parables, the parable of the ten virgins who are waiting and uh, they have to keep their lamps lit the, the parable of the talents, which is kind of surprising given the way the parable of, parable of talents is usually taught, that right. you find it in this section of Matthew. And then lastly, th- I want to camp out here for a second. The last part of this last discourse in Matthew is the passage where Jesus says the Son of Man's going to judge and, he, and he's going to sort the nations. And he's yes. going to separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep and goats. And the sheep are going to go on his right and the goats on his left. And most people know about the sheep and the goats. And they also know about this next passage, but they're hardly ever mentioned together. He, it says in verse 34 of chapter 25, The king will say to those, Come, you who are blessed and inherit the kingdom prepared. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And uh, he says, when did we see you in all these things? And then you that famous line, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This is the poster child verse for all kinds of humanitarian aid. And, and obviously we don't want to take away at all from the good that this verse has led Christians to do. But let's just take a moment and put this passage in context. What do you, th- what's, what's something that people miss uh, when they quote this passage out of context as you read this text? Yeah, that's a great question because it is just taken out of context. It becomes very much a uh, whatever you do to people that need help, you do it for me, and thereby you earn merit. Mm-hmm. I mean, that part we don't say, but that's the implication. Thereby you are a follower of Jesus. Right. Uh, as if doing good deeds could possibly make you a good a follower of Jesus. But putting this in a final judgment, he basically gathers everybody together, separates the people, and then says to the ones who are approved, mm-hmm. this was your behavior. And this, you know, this was an outgrowth of the fact that you did trust in Christ. He doesn't flip it around. See, we kind of teach it like you flip it around. Okay, some of you guys... Now, raise your hand if you fed me, if you clothed me, if you did something to the least of these. Okay, you guys come on over here because you're my guys. It's It doesn't happen in that order. Right. That's Yeah, I think that is that is the key point, and you put that really well. If, if you read the way the passage is structured, this is a, a judgment passage. So the judgment is made. Here are the sheep, here are the goats. Yes. He says to the sheep, Hey, almost he's saying, by nature of the fact that you were sheep, you did all these things. So much so that they're surprised 
at the end of wait, wait, when did we do that? When did we do that? This isn't yeah. a pharisaical works-based thing where they say, well, yeah, right. I mean, I was hoping that you'd noticed all the good things I did for you. No, it's you did this, you did this, you did this. When did we see you? When did we do that for you? And he says, when you did it to the least of these brothers. One one point I would make is a lot of people read this passage, commentators read this passage as as referring to preachers of the gospel. Not just anybody and everybody, but preachers of the gospel. So you, you showed favor to people who are doing my work, my brothers. You did that to them, so you did that to me, to the cause of the gospel. But secondly, it, it's a gospel passage. It's not a workspace passage. What it's saying is for those who had trusted in Christ— the good works flowed out of that and not vice versa. They didn't do good works that ultimately got them in with Christ or out with Christ or thrown out into the darkness. No, it was the status of their heart. It was their allegiance to Christ. It was trusting in him. It was surrendering their life to him that then led them to live a life of blessing other people and taking right. care of other people or, or vice versa, not taking care of other people. And so I actually want to take this back as a gospel passage and say, this is yet another glimpse into the fact that you cannot actually serve God until you've been transformed. Right. So this isn't a passage that just gives carte blanche to do good things. And then in the end, Jesus is going to say, well, you didn't really trust me, but you gave me that drink of water and visited me in prison. So get on in here. Now, this you is know, something that's said after the judgment. That's right. You know, Cole, I want to connect this with another difficult passage in uh, Matthew chapter 7, right near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, some will say we did these great things, and we even did them in your name. And he says, I don't know who you are. I mean, if this passage and that passage seem to be saying very complimentary things. Mm, read in context. And, th- and that's the interesting thing. When they're taken out of context, they seem to be saying very different things. Exactly. One of them is, you know, knowing me is the key. The other one is serving me is the key. And when we right. read them in context, we see that well, you have to know God to serve him. And so they fit together perfectly. Uh, the The end of the, of the Gospel of Matthew is interesting for a couple of reasons. We get the crucifixion theme. Uh, and the and the histor- the historical telling of that, we don't get a ton of detail. We do get the choosing of Barabbas, which is interesting, in mm-hmm. the end of the gospel. But probably the crown piece of the end of Matthew is chapter twenty eight, the resurrection and the great commission. It's interesting. There's no ascension in the gospel of Matthew. What what's going on there? That is a great point. Matthew ends with the commission to uh, his disciples, not just those 11, but as you see later. Uh, for example, uh, in the book of Acts, you actually see that every believer takes that commission quite seriously. Mm-hmm. And you see the church exploding because everyone is doing this. Uh, but that's a great uh, point that you made. I really have never given that a great deal of thought he doesn't talk about, uh, you know, a lot of appearances, uh, you know, giving a lot of the various appearances. At this point, he just simply says, okay, this is the story. Now here's where we go into the future. Go mm-hmm. make disciples, etc." I mean, what would you add to that? I think you brought up a good point there. 
I think it fits with Matthew's overall theme. It's it's not that he's neglecting the ascension in the sense that maybe he doesn't believe the ascension happened. It's it, it, mm-hmm. it's it's like you wouldn't make the argument that just because the Gospel of Mark begins when Jesus' public ministry begins, that that Mark didn't think that Jesus was ever born. No, right. nobody's going to make right. that argument. From silence. Well, in the same way, it's not that Matthew's saying that the ascension didn't happen. It's that he is highlighting stylistically this commission. And there's two key points that, that we need to recognize there. The first one is it completes a theme that he begins in this in the second chapter of his gospel. So the prophecy we read earlier in chapter two, which is a prophecy from Isaiah, where he says, The virgin shall conceive, shall have a child, and you'll call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. That's the promise of God coming back to his people. Well, in the end, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If we were to Mm -hmm. crassly translate that into... Um, Hebrew into Aramaic, we would say, and behold, Emmanuel forever. Yes, exactly. Uh, He is bringing that theme together and saying, Jesus has come, the kingdom has come, he has commissioned his apostles to go and share the gospel and make disciples of all the nations and teach them to obey, and he is with them. Always, yeah. And we get some nuance on that in the other Gospels. We get John telling us that Jesus told his disciples before he ascended that the Spirit would come. We get mm-hmm. Paul teaching on that as well. So none of this contradicts that. But Matthew just ends on this note of saying Jesus has come and he has authority over all the nations. And he is with us in the mission that we've been given to carry out as his disciples. Again, this resonates with a book written to people who are already believers. You know, that's a great point. And let me add one thing to that. And mine's a little conjectural. Yours is not. Uh, The idea of Emmanuel in that Isaiah prophecy in chapter 2, and literally you could translate this, like you said, uh, and behold, Emmanuel forever. That passage in Isaiah, let me just give you a little background on that. You may say, Dad, you're reaching too much here. But that passage in Isaiah, historically, is coming from a time when Isaiah is speaking. I'll leave a lot of the details out. He's speaking to the king of Judah. And the king of Judah has found out that a couple kingdoms in the north, just north of them, have come together to attack. And he's scared to death. He's like, we, we have nowhere near enough army for this. And Isaiah says to him, virgin will conceive a child, name him Emmanuel. And before he's old enough to know right from wrong, before he's a couple years old, those two nations won't even be here anymore. Mm-hmm. So saddle up and go into battle. And true enough, I mean, historically speaking, the Assyrians did indeed come and conquer those two nations very shortly after that. But it's really interesting that here at the end, you see that, okay, saddle up and go into battle because God has got you, has Mm. got this taken care of. I just think that's, it's just, there's so many levels of connection happening there. Yeah, it's powerful. It would have it would have been very powerful to people that knew the scriptures, and in a moment like this, it's just it's it's almost comical 
the debates that people have over whether or not that passage in Isaiah chapter 7 refers to Mm -hmm. a virgin or just a young woman and the different Hebrew word that's used and then how it's translated in the Septuagint, how Matthew renders it. I mean, you can go round and round on this. And and ultimately, we, we need to do an episode on this at some point, maybe when we get into more of the Old Testament history and, and the prophetic literature. Having a prophecy fulfilled immediately in history, so the birth of Hezekiah, for example, to fulfill this uh-huh. prophecy, doesn't mean that it's not a prophecy about the future in a bigger sense. In fact, that's right. usually the way that prophecy works is it's historically fulfilled and then it is typologically fulfilled in the kingdom of God later on. So a lot of times in an even bigger way. So, for example, here it's the the military and temporal salvation of the nation of Israel. And then later it is the cosmic salvation of all of God's people from the forces of darkness forever. That's not uncommon in prophecy. And what Matthew's doing is he's tying the entire thing together. It's almost as if he's saying, hey, you remember how amazing it was and what what verve the Israelites had when they had this prophecy delivered to them militarily. Well, this is the same confidence that we have as we go out and fulfill the Great Commission now. Absolutely. So let's just end by saying a word about the Great Commission. This is one of the more famous passages in all of the Bible. This is used in missions. It's used in discipleship. Um, there's, there's even been a little bit of an ebb and flow in this. There was the go, therefore, people saying, well, that means go to the ends of the earth, which I think is true in some sense. Mm-hmm. And then you had the backlash where it was trendy to teach that this means as you go, because it's a participle. And, and then you learn <laughs> yeah, Greek and you're like, true. wow, well, a participle can actually have the function of an imperative. So we were, Imperative-tible that, doesn't, force, that yeah. really doesn't settle it. Uh, yeah. As you go, <laughs> go to the ends of the earth. To me, the, the, the function of this command is the same. Go and make disciples. Make, make disciples is the main verb. It is the command. And whether or not that, that participle has uh, the force of an imperative or not, he yeah. gives us a definition of what it means to make disciples, and that is to baptize. That's, that's the evangelistic part of it. Mm-hmm. And then teach to obey. This is a part, I think, that that trails off, not just when people are quoting this verse from memory. They get to the uh, make disciples of all the nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and then they just trail off. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, which in Matthew is a lot. There's a lot in here about what it means to obey. And that's the function of discipleship in the church. This is a discipleship manual in part because it's meant to be obeyed. (laughs) It's It's not just a history. It's not just a description. It is actually a set of orders for the church and for disciples of, of Christ to follow. That's exactly right. It, it's, I mean, we, we in the Western world, particularly in later Christian America, have picked apart and kind of piecemealed the good news of the gospel into the accepting Christ, and then behavior is a separate thing. And we get the idea of the love of God, and so we commit our lives to him, and we just go love people. And we kind of have this debate, if you will, between discipleship and evangelism. I mean, we've Mm -hmm. allowed those two things to be. Evangelism means going, telling people about Christ, he loves you, there's a way for him to recreate you, 
come join. And then there are the stuffy discipleship people that say, hey, by the way, behavior matters. And you see that all together here, and that's the way it should be, is that all those things have to go together. You really, it's a very late Western idea to split those two things apart. That's true. The, the process of discipleship contains both, and we're all called to both. It's not a gifting question. Some are more gifted than others, obviously, but it's not a gifting question. It's not an opportunity question. It's an obedience question. We've been called well, to you know, make this, disciples. Yeah, exactly. And even in, um, and I'm not, tra- I don't mean this comment to be terribly critical. I simply mean it to be an observation. Uh, and I think God will bless the church regardless, uh, even when we make mistakes. But you have churches who are very evangelistic, but not very much into discipling and, and unapologetic about that. Hey, we exist to reach people that don't know Christ and they can go get disciples somewhere else. That's kind of a deficient, in my view, understanding of the Great Commission and mm-hmm. vice versa. We're a church that we disciple like crazy, but we don't need anybody else joining this number. Well, that's just as deficient in carrying out the Great Commission. Right. Well, we haven't done this much before on the book overviews that we've done, but but with the Gospel of Matthew, it strikes me, if you're going to study this Gospel more, uh, it would be good to get some kind of resource or commentary. There's just a ton going on here. What's your favorite resource for studying the Gospel of Matthew? Well, uh, I guess let me answer a slightly different question. I'll tell you a little series that I like for teachers and people that aren't, uh, that don't, you know, have the time or desire to be very academic, N.T. Wright has done a neat little series called, uh, you know, like Matthew for Everyone. Uh-huh. And in his usual way, N.T. Wright tells great stories, kind of explains it, gives a big theme. They're not real thick. It's not like a big, thick commentary. And, and I know that's not exactly what you asked me, but I would recommend something like that for a lot of teachers because it's it's pretty solid and it'll give you the the idea of what's happening and you for those of you that are working and teaching you don't have time to read a you know 12 volume uh, you know study of the Gospel of Matthew but I found that little series to be very useful uh, for people. What about you? What about Matthew resources? What do you like? Yeah, the NC Wright stuff is great. He has good discussion questions in there. Enough information. Uh-huh. It, not too much more advanced than a study Bible, but a little right, bit more true. geared towards teaching and discussion. I think the gold standard for Matthew is R.T. Francis' commentary. That's the the volume in the New International yeah. series. Uh, his, his is excellent. D.A. Carson has some great work on Matthew. A book, if you're just interested in in the way that Matthew structures his gospel, the way that the Sermon on the Mount functions... Uh, Jonathan Pennington's book, Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And he's actually working on a full-scale commentary of Matthew, I think, that will come out who knows when in the next few years sometime. But uh, the Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing is really good if you want to get into something that examines Jesus as a wisdom teacher, how that fits with the gospel as opposed to just morality. That's, that's a great resource, too. Yeah, outstanding. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Mm-hmm.